Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's episode is an encore, audio-only presentation of our second installment of the Pioneers and Pathfinders Virtual Roundtable Series. Last week, we hosted a live discussion with panelists spanning legal tech investing, AI-powered software development, and legal insights and strategy consulting. Our guest, Jay Um, good friend of the podcast and founder and executive director at Six Parsecs, Tony Tai, chief executive officer and chief engineer at Hyperdraft, Inc., Zach Posner, co-founder and managing director of the Legal Tech Fund, and Bian Kim, senior director of technology innovations at Cypherth, shared their insights on how legal organizations can understand and navigate the rapidly evolving landscape of legal AI providers and their transformative technologies. Our panelists discussed the current and anticipated advancements in generative AI, strategic approaches regarding the impact of this technology, and their thoughts on how legal organizations can implement this technology successfully. Thank you to everyone who attended last week's session, and thank you to our listeners for joining us today. Thank you, everybody, for attending. I really appreciate you spending uh, the next hour with us. In particular, thanks go out to a wonderful group of panelists who are bringing incredible expertise in this area. Let me just take a second and introduce them. I'll go uh, uh, clockwise in the order I see them on my screen. That starts with Zach Posner. Uh, Zach is one of, if not the leading investor in legal tech, and he's co-founder and managing director of the Legal Tech Fund. The Legal Tech Fund is an early stage fund focused on backing companies that are reimagining the world of law. Uh, Next to him on my screen is Tony Tai. Tony is the founder, CEO, and chief engineer of Hyperdraft. He started out as a software engineer, then became a lawyer practicing both in big laws as in-house. He left big law to found Hyperdraft which is a startup focused on using advanced technology to modernize the delivery of legal services. Next to him is Jay Um. Jay is one of the most astute commentators on the legal profession, particularly big law. She's founder and executive director of Six Parsecs, which is a research and insight company focused exclusively on legal markets. Jay's previously worked inside AMLA 100 firms, fair disclosure, including Cypharth, in strategy and pricing capacities. And finally is Byung Kim. Byung is Senior Director of Technology Innovation at Cypherth. In that capacity, Byung leads Cypherth Labs, a group which is devoted to the exploration, testing, and implementation of emerging technologies to transform how our teams work and how our clients experience and deliver legal services. Thanks to each of you for taking time to join today. I'm sure the audience is going to really get a lot of value from your insights. I am the host, uh, Stephen Poor. I'm Chair Emeritus of Cypherth. But among other things, host a podcast, Pioneers and Pathfinders, focusing on the journeys of people working to change the legal profession. Zach, Tony, and Jay have all been guests on the podcast. So if you want to learn more about their backgrounds and their thoughts on the profession, look them up. So what are we doing today? Well, first, let me start with what we're not talking about. This is not a session devoted to the fundamentals of generative AI. This isn't a, what is chat GPT. We're not going to talk about the basics, risks, and benefits of generative AI. We covered all of that in the June virtual roundtable, which if you're interested, you can find on the Pioneers and Pathfinders library. Uh, So look it up. Our goal is to help you move to the next level of dealing with this this technology and the implications of it. Generative AI is happening, whether you like it or not. And our goal today is to help you get ahead of the curve. We're going to start about talking about current technology landscape, which is changing by the minute then focus on a strategic approach regarding the impact of this technology before talking about some approaches to successful implementation. We got some questions in advance, and we tried to work them into uh, the presentation. If we don't give you adequate answers to your questions, just ask them again in the Q&A session. So, Zach, let's start with you. Last year, since ChatGPT dropped, it's been a blur of announcements around generative AI products, both current and anticipated. For those who struggle to stay current in the area and perhaps are just blurry-eyed trying to look at all the various announcements, take a few minutes and give us sort of your view of the landscape, what's emerging, what's coming, sort of how do you see this landscape forming? Yeah, I guess first before I jump into it, thanks, Steve, for having me. This is an awesome panel, all friends. Um, 
Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Beyond as well. I, I think Steve mentioned briefly, but we're, we're kind of um, we're an early stage venture capital fund. So what we are doing is we're meeting with anywhere from fifty to one hundred and fifty early stage companies on a monthly basis, and we are seeing a ton, and we're investing in a very few percent of those companies. You know, maybe one of them every other month. And then what we try to do is accelerate those companies as much as we possibly can and help them both with financial capital and also human capital. So, you know, introducing them to people like Steve, people like Jay, people, um, you know, should they be partnering with companies like Tony? But yeah, you know, about probably about a year ago, I put a post on LinkedIn saying, is anybody doing anything interesting with this stuff? And I think it was right before the demo came out that kind of changed everything. So I think at a high level, this is some of, you know, I, I actually posted something this morning on LinkedIn about the pace of adoption here, the, the, the pace of people interacting with this, of downloads. But I think the secret behind this, opposed to any other technology that we've seen before, is how well this actually demoed. So every single person here, I'm sure, has seen some sort of demo of this technology of generative AI. And when you see it, you get it and you quickly understand it. And I think that that has caused just a wave of entrepreneurs and technologists to think about this. That wave comes in like three different areas. The first one is, of course, early stage companies that are thinking about this. You know, these are new companies that are just getting started. The next wave is probably some of your more established companies, some of the technologies that are just getting established and that are really, we're generating some, um, some traction. And then they're saying, Hey, we could use this to almost like be a rocket ship for what we're doing. Tony, I'd kind of put you directionally in that bucket. And then you have this third stage that's, um, you know, your traditional incumbents. And this is kind of the first type of technology that we've seen where the traditional incumbents have a real voice in kind of what happens. And it's not just about, you know, they can use this technology like anybody else can. But I think, um, so we're seeing all three of those groups play and we're seeing more activity quicker than we ever have in all three of them. I think that there was, um, you know, I'm sure some of us saw, but Goldman Sachs put out a report that said 44% of all legal work is basically susceptible to being replaced in some capacity by AI. I don't necessarily believe that, but I do know that that got the attention of all of our counterparts in Silicon Valley. <laughs> so we went from being this boring venture capital fund to almost like the popular kid on the block. We're on a daily basis now. Some of the larger, more traditional venture funds are calling us saying, hey, we're thinking about this space. What do you think? So I think that there's like a ton of capital moving into this space. And I know we thought we saw that a couple of years ago, but we're talking about a whole nother level now because, you know, it's coming. And, and then I think your incumbents have these technologies where they say, hey, we can bolt some of this stuff on and accelerate what we're doing. And then you have people like Tony that said that I'm guessing, Tony, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but we're doing some pretty awesome stuff. <laughs> and maybe this stuff can kind of accelerate us by 10x. Yeah, no, that's right. Zach, I'm curious. I mean, I have my own thoughts on this, but I'm curious why you think the sudden focus on legal tech. I, I did notice that like there's a lot of different in industries that were targeted for disruption with the introduction of generative AI, why do you think legal tech, even from like non-legal professionals, why do you think that got so much attention so quickly? Well, I, I think it's, um, I think this is about human capital. I, I, you know, I think what this technology puts a risk at are industries that focus on like human capital. And if you, um, if you think about what this technology does, you know, and you break it down, the first thing that it does is it's able to read like massive quantities of information. So for, chat GPT, let's call that the internet. Then it's able to analyze that. And then it's able to take some sort of output action, which the most interesting stuff happens to be the output of text that we're seeing. That sounds a lot, you know, like what somebody in the human capital, like what an associate does. And I think that when you look at other industries that are human capital focused uh, or professional services oriented, accounting, consulting, like those have already seen an influx of technology. And I just think that this vertical was behind to start with, and it just falls into this larger bucket. So that, that, that's kind of my um, inclination. And then when people like Goldman put out reports that this is the number one industry to be affected by it, it just accelerates it. 
Yeah, I have another theory that adds on, you know, what Zach just said that I think you're right on point, but it's a great story, right? As you know, the technology story of of, uh, generative AI and large language models get told, lawyers just make a great example because, you know, you look at what ChatGPT 3.5 did on the universal bar exam. It scored on in the 10th percentile. And then a few months later, when they released ChatGPT4, it scored in the 90th percentile, right? So if we're thinking about the economics, 90th percentile on the bar exam is really meaningful because I tend to think most legal tasks that lawyers perform at very high price are much easier than the bar exam. And then if you take the LSAT scores that, you know, out of the box, large language models can achieve, we are now talking about like T14 graduate level of capability. And I think kind of the recent history of legal innovation and kind of uh, legal being known as a laggard in, in kind of digital transformation. And then the, the opportunity for a leapfrog makes it a really compelling story. But also I think it's because it goes to the heart of what you know, large language models do. Chief Justice John Roberts said language is the central tool of our trade. So really language is what, um, you know, lawyers work in. And I think I really feel like for the first time there is technology that is really designed for the lawyer. And that's that's never really been the case. So I think we are in a unique moment. And, and you know, I, I think the attention is merited. I, I agree with all of that. And there's also a lot of other factors going in that, you know, the legal industry in general People have an interesting view on it when they look at it. And then you see that, you know, what's happened to hourly rates over the years and how they've gone up compared to inflation. And I think that there's a lot of other pressures that were being placed on the industry. But I think that, you know, now that there's some technology here, I think we're just going to see, you know, Bill Gates has a great quote. People, they overestimate what happens in one year. They underestimate what happens in 10. And I think we're sitting at like the perfect place for like a three to four, maybe five year type of disruption. And it kind of has all the right elements here for it. So Zach, do you think a lot of this is still hype though with all these vendors, this new landscape? They're just these startups just trying to... Yeah, I, 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 think it's exactly, I think it's exactly what I just described. We're overestimating what can happen in one year, but I think we're really underestimating. Jay, I mean, everything that you said about the bar exam, keep in mind, you talk about those numbers from going from three to 3.5 or three to four, whatever it was. You know, we're probably six months away from seeing chat GPT five and we're probably a year away from six and if you look at you know how much better it's getting you start to you know right now and right now there's still fundamental challenges with it right you have all the stuff we talk about you have hallucinations you have a question about confidentiality you have a lot of barriers to it but i think that they're going to start fading away one at a time zach you're a venture capitalist i have a question that i love asking vcs so is being too early the same as being wrong 100 percent equal we say that all the time. And I think what we're seeing is there's, I mentioned some of the challenges, like those all face big law firms. The other thing that's facing a big law firm is the malpractice insurers write a letter saying we won't insure anything that, you know, is output by using this stuff. Flip side is we see small law firms, you know, where people are using this stuff pretty rapidly. We see things maybe not around the practice of law, but the business of law. So we let, like we're watching the customer traction as the vehicle to determine what's what's early versus what's too early versus what's not. And there's no difference between there was a hundred different websites that were trying to power online video experiences. And then YouTube came along at the exact time when broadband penetration was moving and flash was ubiquitous and boom. So like it's not, it's not necessarily the idea. It's about execution and timing. I appreciate that perspective. I agree with it in some respects. I have a different view of why legal tech took off so heavily in this last year. Agree with all your points, definitely. But I, I think in a more cynical and define, view. Define takeoff real fast. Do you mean like people are interested in it or people are buying more software? Like what, what do you mean? Yeah. I mean, especially on the AI side, like this is the most I've ever seen legal tech be mentioned besides boring CLM type marketing pitches. Many non-lawyers, many non-legal professionals are are getting into that space because there is this, what I was going to say is the rest of the population is still working on asymmetrical information. And I think that the fact of the matter is like everybody's perspective has been lawyers plus language equals contracts. Therefore, we should be able to slot technology into this. So there's still a gross kind of uh, misinformation, but inadequacy in terms of like the general population's understanding of what a lawyer actually does, what an in-house department actually does, which is causing people to be like, hey, we can replace them 
it can be cheaper by replacing them with tech. So let's keep making new tech to supplant them. So I actually think like it had the wrong, you know, fuel or ignition, but has the right effect in terms of with that onslaught of attention and uh, creation from outsiders, that tech is creating the right time for other other providers, if that, if that makes sense, right? So it's kind of like a positive feedback mechanism where it's like, hey, we're making this tech no matter what, right? Legal professionals are not legal professionals. We're going to replace this part of the workflow. So you better get on board. And that creates the, the attention from the legal field. And so that, that's my perspective of it. Just that's because I'm a cynic and I've been in the industry for a number of years. So have you, right? So I've seen these kind of trends go up and down. Seems like the cycle right now. No, I mean, capital creates some of that stuff. You know, like capital is a weapon at times where, and we're early stage, so we're not, we're not able to write checks like this. But like, you know, if somebody with a mediocre idea raises a hundred million dollars, you know, and can go hire 10, 20, 30, 50 developers, that gives you a lot of cycles to continuously pivot to figure out how you meet the market. Like we're more saying we want to find entrepreneurs that already have some product market fit. But I agree with you, like the ons, like the, the, the larger funds that say they want exposure to legal and write some massive checks to put behind some companies, like <laughs> they can kind of create some of the, you know, what the future looks like a little bit. But you guys bring up a good point, but like CLM, for example, when Tony brought that up, that wasn't a new tech or type of topic at all, right? That's been going on for several, several decades at this rate, right? Contracts managing it, but. With AI itself, I do notice, yes, I agree with you. There's been this hype cycle for sure. Like everyone's talking about it, but the AI piece of it, is it its own tech or is it something that's supplemental to everything? And I think that's what also is this interesting story where we talk about replacing lawyers or then you see all other vendors and you see all these new startups coming. It's like, I think I have a little piece of that, but I don't know where that all fits into everything. So I, I think it's definitely a story, but the landscape is so hard to manage and just saying AI or generative AI, it's where does it all fit? And how does that really help people solve or like, how do I look at this? How do I understand it? And I think I myself, it's hard to keep up with anything going on right now, just because every other, every hour, I probably get an email from someone saying, Hey, check us out. And it's like, where were you guys all of a sudden, maybe like a year ago? Young, I was having a chat with the, another CTO of his last weekend. And we were laughing because we were talking about, we were complaining about microservices and how it's really slowed down development processes. And from an outsider perspective, you're like, no, no, microservices, like building little micro solutions for everything should speed everything up. The problem is over-specialization and then people finding shiny objects to play with. And, you know, it might work for a small startup who, you know, is still trying to figure out and get their sea legs, build out a business. But when you're running a business that makes over $100 million a year, we're not going to bet on the latest new tech because it changes every six to nine months, right? It's still getting improved. And so when we make decisions, whether it's complete vendors or just packages, frameworks, modules that we use that are open source, we look at reliability, longevity, and maturity of the package itself. And I think that same engineering concept should be applied to, to legal tech. I've got a question that may fit in here. Given the orders of magnitude that generative AI is accelerating, what is your sense of an approximate timeline for products that create effective legal briefing with accurate case citations? I'll give the first hot take so I can eat my words in like a year or two. Uh, <laughs> timeline w depends on your definition of quality, right? Will it get to 100%? My bet, uh, no, right? Will it get to 90, 95% accuracy in terms of precision of like output? Maybe, potentially in the next three to five years, the, the thing that people don't pay attention to enough of is when we're talking about generative AI, we're talking about data wrangling, right? We're wrangling millions of data points, if not trillions, right? So the sheer scale of the problem set alone requires a lot of human intervention, supervision, and input. So not to give the lawyer answer to this, but it really depends on your definition of what output of that brief is going to be acceptable for you. But if you're looking for something that will express your intent we're a few years out, at least five to 10, right? That, that's, that's my thinking. But I think it also depends on the quality. What we're seeing is like maybe criteria is like, what's a really good brief? Other than maybe the citations too, right? Because every attorney or every stakeholder involved in a firm or you know, small, big or small has a different perspective on what they consider is good, right? And how do you wrangle all those 
and having technologists come and say, hey, here's the best brief that we suggest. Is it good for your firm or how you believe in it? I guess it depends, right? So I think that's where the challenge is, right? Does everyone get into this consensus? Let's all be very upfront. Getting a group of attorneys in a room all agreeing to consensus on something, it's not an easy challenge for anyone. Another dimension to that it depends. I mean, I think it depends on the business value at stake. And as you know, lawyers get together and have differing viewpoints about what's good enough, the prevailing view should be that of the buyer, right? The client and how important the matter is. The nature of the work, I do think, does matter because um, you know, if you look at 80% of the corporate legal wallet. We're thinking about problems, known problems and known solutions. And yes, there is variability from case to case. But if you look at the corpus, there's a high level of standardization. I think we would apply a different standard there than like that the company matters. In terms of Tony's prediction, I, I'll accelerate that. I'll, I'll, I'll see your three to five years and I will raise you. I actually think if you take what Byung said earlier about the general framework of displacement versus augmentation and enablement, right? And you take the enablement viewpoint, I think we're going to have very useful tools of briefing tools within 18 months. I think it's going to be faster. Now, are those tools are going to displace the lawyer, take the lawyer out of the supply chain um, and the means of production? No, absolutely not. But things that lawyers should be using, I think we're going to see in the market very quickly, actually. Jay, just to zero in on that, you said 18 months for briefing tools. This is where context matters. Like briefing as in like briefing on legal matter or actual drafting a brief? Because I think the question was more towards drafting a brief rather than briefing on, yeah. on data. Like I'm, I'm going to stick with 18 months. Yeah. For wow. generating briefs. Yeah. All right. All right. Run the clock, Zach. I'm, I'm, I'm saying yeah, Same I'm sorry, but sounds another bet come out. That's another bet. Let's do it. Let's do a dinner bet. Interesting bet. I I think, um, like, I agree. I I think it's about the eyes of the beholder. So, I mean, I think, Steve, you sitting at SafeHearth, you know, maybe it's three, five, ten years away. You opening up your own shingle and servicing local folks that otherwise would not be able to get access, (laughs) it could be two months away. And that's why I was used that comment earlier that, like, we're seeing some things penetrate small law. That are pretty odd, like you know where that may be good enough, but I think just to extend on whoever asked the question, I think somebody did it in the uh, chat. I mean, there are some things right now. Like I would venture to say, if you ask these tools to summarize something, like you're at ninety nine and a decimal, like you're pretty damn good right now. If you ask it to translate languages, you're pretty good. When you ask it for open ended things, yeah, it hallucinates. It does, you know, and you don't know where the sources are coming from. But I think that this is all a spectrum, but I think that there's a very different approach that we're seeing in the marketplace between the way big law is procuring and using this versus small. Zach, I, I need to press you on the summarization point. So you're saying for the summarization tooling using the current whatever models, right? We're 99.9% at the what? Like the quality level we're ever going to reach or in terms of like the output is 99.9% high quality. I'm saying you don't see hallucin- you you take away the hallucination problem. You take away if you say if you drop something in and say summarize these two pages for me in a paragraph, you get a pretty damn good output. You know, versus hey, write me a brief on this where that like the open ended versus the closed ended. Yeah, Stephen, like you you tell me when to like shut up because I, I don't want to get too far down onto the strat like the strategy implementation side, but this is a very key point to it because. You might be right in terms of like the quality of that output, but who's going to be on the hook for the point one? And then when you're a legal department, that's that's the problem. And I, I didn't say we should go do everything. I'm just saying if you ask where the technology is right now, it's pretty good for some of these things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think, Tony, the question we ask ourselves is in terms of the point one is from perfection, but that's the wrong measurement because you're going to, you're going to summarize a document and you're going to give it to a junior attorney or something. And there's a risk of human error built into that as well. So the question is, does it summarize it better than a human can do? And secondly, we just got an observation that. Or the driving- moment, by the way, it's not a this or that. I mean, it can also be the tool that somebody uses to help. Uh, 
Well, I think that's right. And I think it, you know, it, it goes to the point made earlier that we're talking about augmenting people. If we wait for anything to be 100%, we're going to be waiting forever. And 100% is in the eyes of the beholder. And you're right, Zach, you made the point, small law versus big law, these markets, which leads us sort of to how you think about this strategically. Jay, I know you've done a lot of work in this. So let's start with, let's start with the perspective from the legal department. Okay, I've got, I've got all of these products. I've got all these services, and there's tremendous pressure to do something because everybody's doing something with generative AI because it's the hot thing. Do I just leap in and buy one of these products and go for the thing that gets me to the 0.1% gap? Or do I think differently about it? And if so, how do I think about it? So I think it's, uh, it's really important to set kind of the table for the discussion. So I, I will actually throw out, I think, a presumption that needs some examination. This narrative that legal demand has been flat for the last couple of decades is just so misleading. I think outside spend has been held flat through immense efforts by, you know, the corporate law departments, right? So if we kind of take the presumption that they are under the pressure of rising demand, I think that should kind of shape our, our viewpoint as we turn to what to do about generative AI. I think the second viewpoint I have, which I'd love to hear reactions from this group, is I don't think Gen AI is a product category. I think that is the maybe the most unhelpful way to think about it. I think AI as a, a whole, not just generative AI, is a capability, right? Um, I think uh, Zach said the word bolt-on, which is something I hate when technology providers bolt on new features and then use kind of buzzwords as, as marketing puffery. I think it's too early to be spending like lots of big money, especially for corporate law departments on, on a product just because it's Gen AI. One, market's moving way too fast. There's a lot of players we're seeing like a explosion into a crowded house like overnight and the market will shake itself out. I think right now what corporate law departments really ought to focus on is what is the overall range of underserved and unserved needs that we have. So I think it's more important for them to really understand and get a get a uh, get their arms around the overall demand and not just the the volume of the demand, but the composition of that demand, right? Uh, tranche by tranche, like across the value spectrum, where are we struggling? Where are people struggling? Where are our external partners struggling? I think that self-awareness is really important to bring to the, the decision process for um, how are we going to you know, operate an AI-enabled future, because that is coming for sure, and I think at a, a faster clip than we think. And I think it's right to start with the corporate law department when we start talking about strategy. That means a lot of different things, depending on which player you're talking about in the market. But it's all interconnected, right? Um, I think really this time, the general counsel and the in-house lawyers are really in the driver's seat because their sourcing strategy is really going to, going to drive the size and texture of the market for service providers and technology providers. And then so I think that we're going to see corporate law departments make a series of decisions in the next two years that's really going to shape the competitive landscape for traditional providers, so law firms as well as, you know, kind of new law and new breed providers. I think rather than a tool that you buy, I really think, you know, Ed Stone and, and I released uh, the first part of a white paper today. And, you know, our view very strongly is that the most productive way to think about generative AI is as a coworker, as an immensely extensible, scalable coworker with a growing, expanding set of capabilities. And that actually gets us back to the talent question. I think the thing that really binds together corporate law departments and law firms, even when it seems like an unhappy marriage, is the talent pipeline. You know, for the last three generations of lawyers, law firms have really been the way that, you know, young lawyers get trained and then sourced into in-house roles. Is that going to change as we have to really conceptualize new paradigms for the training and development of lawyers? I think not because, not just because, you know, there's displacement risk, but really because the ways of working that we're going to ask for from lawyers are going to change dramatically in the next generation, right? Um, and then so how do we reconcile our old models of thinking about why do law firms really even exist, right? There's specialized expertise that in-house departments really can't keep on the payroll, that variety and depth of 
specialized expertise, right? How are we going to develop that? What does that mean? How do we put a valuation on that in an age where we can have machine intelligence process like information very quickly? And then what does that do to the second reason I think law firms exist, which is peak load demand? Sometimes things happen and you need a burst of, of manpower, expert manpower very quickly, right? AI is going to change the economics of that drastically. And then so I think there's going to be a lot of interesting conversations, value-oriented conversations that happen that's going to inform strategy on all sides of the market. I'm going to stop talking now because I want to hear kind of reactions to my... Jay, I got a, I got a follow-up question for you. Like having been in-house, I can tell you that most of the time I was operating trying to float in water. So for most of these GCs and in-house counsel, like I'm sure I, I actually, Zach taught me this, right? So I will give Zach this credit. If you're trying to sell to someone who's distracted, right? How are you going to justify that to them as a vendor? But as an in-house counsel, how do you justify that to the remainder of the business unit? So how would you craft that, I don't know, um, business proposal for adopting new tech when you're so busy fighting all these other fires? You mean like making the business case for legal tech buy when yeah. you're um, in-house? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a perennial problem for any, and, and I know people take offense at this term, but like back office function, right? If you're on the expense side of the PNL, I don't think that's a legal specific issue, but I know it is definitely a pain point. I think in this case, my viewpoint is that we're going to see that the direction of that pressure reverse a little bit because AI is going to be ubiquitous in business use within three to five years, right? I think the big tech companies are going to make sure of that. Microsoft and Google own 90% of the enterprise market. They're going to make it really easy to buy AI-enabled tooling. So that's going to be familiar to the business, to the CFOs, to the CIO. It's not like a weird cottage thing that lawyers have invented for themselves and we have to go explain what this thing is that we need to spend money on. In fact, I actually think that general productivity suites are going to have these capabilities built in that is going to become very familiar to the procurement kind of machine of the big enterprise. And then so I think that business case is going to be actually much easier than it's been in the past. Now, you still have to make a business case for your budget, but that's part of just having rigor in your stewardship of corporate resources, right? I, I, I don't think it's going to be like particularly a prohibitive blocker. Let me, let me follow up on Tony's question and expand it a little bit differently. If you begin to think about the implications of this technology and whether it becomes ubiquitous or or not, or, or it's a product, it's going to change in what your way of thinking, Jay, and I think I agree with this, it's going to change the way the business, the law department operates and its relationships with its outside suppliers. That requires actually some time to sit and think and analyze and incorporate ideas and begin to think ahead a year or two or three or, God forbid, five years. And yet Tony raises the dynamic that you're talking about people that are swamped with work right now and have a hard time getting up to whether or not to buy the bolt-on product, let alone rethink how they're doing it. How do you deal with that dynamic? How do you deal with the need to take a deep breath, think about the long-term implications and begin to think about the change management associated with this while you're trying to put out the fires of your day-to-day -day work? So... Two numbers, because of course I have to cite numbers when I'm talking. Um, Microsoft did this fascinating study of not not lawyers, like just all people in, in productivity settings. 49% of people have some level of anxiety about job security associated with AI. 79% of people would today delegate the maximum amount of work to AI if they could. Right. And I think there's that push pull that we're talking about. There's it's a certain kind of paradox. And it really shows that, um, yes, change is scary, but we are stretched too thin and we need the help. We want all the help we can get from technology. And then so, you know, I bring that up because all change, all change has to do with feelings. Right. Change management is a feelings business. So going back to, I think Zach was talking about Mars Law and Bill Gates um, gave a really great talk about it like 30 years ago. If you look at the pace of change in any system, so Mars Law, if you look at diffusion curve, the theory of innovation, Bill Henderson's written tons of content on it. 
or even the hype cycle, it's kind of a process over time. And the, the thing that all three curves have in common is that it's a curve. It's not a linear kind of steady progress in which people change their minds, people change their behaviors, or we see different dynamics, right? There's typically inflection points. And then so I think getting started is, is an exercise in patience and playing the long game, but also understanding that there's a sequencing and prioritization exercise needed. Firstly, to you know get people comfortable with the idea of experimentation. Again, I think general counsel and in-house departments are in the driver's seat here because um, they really have to kind of take a stance that this is what they want to see from their providers. This is what they want to see from their in-house teams. Um, and I think that is going to trigger a prioritization exercise to Tony's point about like, yes, everyone's drinking from the fire hose. It's like that comic that Casey Flaherty always shows where like a Stone Age comic where someone's running after their friends with like, I invented the wheel and they're all like carrying stones saying, we're too busy to listen to your stupid idea. I think it's the leadership that has to create space and capacity to explore tools that really have the potential to help quite a bit and help people with their workloads quite a bit. And that's why I think this has to be a high level leadership conversation on the buy side. In in-house law departments, like that leadership has to have that conversation internally and with their providers. I think too, general counsel are really the, the people who have the most sway to shape the viewpoint of the insurers. The insurers are going to be, I think, an important viewpoint in the pace of adoption, especially in the high end of the, the enterprise market. And so for many reasons, it's general counsel who have to moderate and lead this conversation. Jay, I'm going to take a, a way more uh, blunt approach to it, uh, if I may. I'm more on the daily implementation side and consultative function of like on the ground, boots on the ground, you know, following your white papers and figuring out, you know, uh, how to implement those those items. I think the most practical approach for in-house counsel um, is to pick low-hanging fruit. You, know, you kind of alluded to it before about prioritization. So my most practical advice to talk when, when we first speak with clients is, hey, this is what I need from you, user stories. And then teaching them how to write user stories, like Emily is an employee in the legal function doing X, Y, Z. She wakes up, goes in the office, does A, B, C. And from that, you provide it to a technology consultant or provider who will map that out for you. That low-hanging fruit has to be number one. And that's what I was trying to drive at before with the other question, which is that like too often I see either from the buy side or from even the sell side, like people trying to sell you know, the entire kitchen, right? So I, I always recommend to, whether it's in-house or law firms, to find the lowest hanging fruit that everybody can get on board with that provides that value proposition out the gate so that it can justify the switching cost, right? Because switching costs in enterprise is a tremendous hurdle. It's an incredible amount of inertia that you have to get people through. And Biyoung, I, I want to hear your take on this because, you know, I deal with it a lot, but we have many different clients that we have to satisfy. You have one set of clients. There's pros and cons to that, right? For sure. So I, I want to hear your take on building for one client, but many different users, right? But Steve, to, to hit your point, my, my, my recommendation is find the lowest hanging fruit you can find. It could even be... You know, for one client, we did letter generation. But if you ask us to do letter generation, my first question is like, I, that sounds like mail merge can handle that, man. Like, I, I don't see the point in using our tech. But then they follow up that information by saying like, hey, we actually generate 500,000 documents a day that need to go to a mail room that need to be printed. If anything messes up, that's thousands of dollars worth of postage that go, goes out every day. So that's great low hanging fruit that we can provide value for out the gate. And the switching cost is low because you can start, you know, slowly integrate that that tech. So that's that's my recommendation for in-house counsel, or if you're outside counsel looking to streamline operations with your client, it's tougher when you're outside counsel because you have to tackle two problems. You have to tackle service delivery, and then you have to tackle the problem of pricing and cost. And you know, this is a discussion Zach and I had early on. I said I'm not in the business of selling new business models to people. You use our tech or you don't. I can help you with it, but I'm not here to teach you how to compensate your employees any better or differently. That's for the consultants to handle on the on the you know comp side. But you know if you're in-house counsel looking to 
find pathways to integrate new tech, find low hanging fruit to Jay's point. It doesn't have to be gen AI focused, right? Like it could be something super simple that you can automate. And then that's that drug that you give the business units to get them hooked. Uh, not, not to be uh, you know, a drug dealer, but in the sense, but you know, it's, it's the good type of drug dealer. But Tony, maybe you bring up a great point, and I agree with you 100%. I think that's the approach we recommend to even in being at Sidepark too as well. But I think the big key thing is one of the things I always tell folks to start off is just understand a little bit more about what this AI tech is, what people are talking about too as well, because I think a lot of people don't know about a lot of this stuff too as well, right? We know this is not here to teach people the fundamentals, but I think sometimes when we get those like low-hanging fruit use cases or just these business needs, they're like, basically, they're just automation type products, right? They're just literally task automation instead of everyone thinks it's sometimes just boiled onto this huge AI project, right? And, or maybe there might be a data related project. And so I think that's also one of the factors in terms of strategy. What we recommend is some type of learning, some type of understanding. And I'm not saying go through a whole gen AI course through some university to understand all the ins and outs. No, but I do think just to know what some of these lingo terms are, because as a vendor, you probably say some of the stuff related to some of the AI tech. Right, with LLMs, with GPT, all that stuff. But I do think for most folks, they have an understanding of what's going on. Julia, I have a question for Zach and Steve, and then maybe um, Tony and Beyond, you guys want to weigh in too. I think it's worth taking a moment to define what we mean by low-hanging fruit. Often when innovation teams and external vendors talk about low-hanging fruit, they are talking about demonstrability, observability of their product, what's lower cost, lowest cost or lowest effort for them to demonstrate. And Steve, don't you, I mean, I remember conversations you and I have had about change management and different technology implementation. Sometimes the juice is not worth the squeeze, right? Because it's not a big enough problem or the size of the prize just isn't there. And then Zach, I'm sure you see people working on problems that are just not worth enough for customers to pay. So Steve, how would you define low-hanging fruit? in this you know, context? I think it has a couple of dimensions. First, the return has to be big enough to have an impact on people's mindsets. You know, to Tony's point, you're trying to implement something that helps change the way people perceive and, and, and get them hungry for more complicated things. But at the same time, the low-hanging fruit has to be a simple enough implementation that you're minimizing the behavioral change necessary to take advantage of the technology so that you're not asking people to completely change the way they're doing their side of the business in order to make the technology work. The technology is helping them do their business more efficiently, more effectively. So they're, so they're sitting there and going, oh, this is cool. I don't have to bait stamp anymore. The machine does it. The technology assisted document review software does that for me. That's how I would define low-hanging fruit. But I suspect Zach probably has a slightly different definition yeah, I'd love to actually go back up for one second. Or, or I, I guess first off, look, you know, change management is difficult, and I think that what Tony, what everybody's been describing, is this concept of like an iterative approach, and how you show some sort of result along the way, and how you do this in pieces. And we agree with that. That's what we encourage our companies to do. Those are the ones that end up being successful, the ones that incorporate feedback along the way. But if I zoom back out, the first question was about um, it was directionally about how things are going to change. And, and what's the best way to go there? But, and, and we moved down the general counsel route, which I think is, um, in this case, maybe a little bit behind the way that law firms are thinking only because the law firms see how this can be a little bit disruptive. And I'm curious, like Steve, your thoughts and maybe not for your specific firm, but about this time of the year, you guys start going through a process that say, how many associates are we going to bring on in the summer of 24? Which actually is indicative of as to how many full time hires you're going to bring on. <laughs> for, I guess, 25, if, that, if that's like directionally. And, you know, I am definitely hearing people that are already starting to take into account AI and say, hey, we're not going to go. They're thinking about the ways that they're bringing people on in, in this summer, thinking about a year out. And I just wonder if law firms are already like subliminal, you know, if it's just like already happening slowly, if they're trying to think, and you can always hire people, you can always hire more people. <laughs> It's harder when you have the opposite challenge. Yeah, I think you need to be thinking a couple of years down the road without any question about it, because it's tech, you know, first question is to try to understand and anticipate what the technology, what impact the technology is going to have on your ability to work and how you train people and how you develop 
people and how many you need to develop. And these are all really difficult questions and there's no obvious answer. Do I think all law firms are engaging in that conversation? Anytime I start with all law firms, the answer is absolutely no. You know, look, I think there's a spectrum of law firms that are, some are just trying to ignore the technology. Some are sort of in the middle where they're trying to understand it and are sort of puzzled by the whole thing, but realize it's kind of an impact. And then there are those that are trying to get ahead of the curve. And I think for those that are getting ahead of the curve, you've got to think it affects your on-campus interviewing this fall. It just does. I'm curious, we've gotten a couple of questions relating around pricing. And I know some of them were directed directly at a J, but I'm curious as to, this sort of goes to the hype around it. And one of the questions was something like, I'm going to paraphrase, general counsel are going to get a lot of pressure from the, from the operation side of the business. I, we don't know exactly what this Gen AI does, this chat GPT does, but it ought to lower our costs. Is this going to change the pricing paradigm in the short term? Uh, short term, like let's define short term. Uh, next year. Next year, I think clients are going to show up and ask for the whole boatload. I think that's what's going to happen. Law firms are going to be really hard pressed to push back on that. You know, and it does matter what's happened in the last three to four years with the pandemic and then kind of the AMLA 100 uh, record years that we've had and what's happened to the rate position. I think the time where we're going to see real economic impacts on corporate legal spend from technology is in about two to four years. And I think that for a number of reasons, there are three main barriers right now to, um, you know, seeing like demonstrable changes to pricing. One is insurers. So to me, you know, a, a lot of the system wide sourcing is not just about human capacity. It's actually about how much risk a firm can take on. And so I think that insurers have to get smart and uh, savvy about how to think about and how to price in liability risk. And I, that's going to just take a while and it, it requires conversation. The second is the expense side. Some of the enterprise scale tooling right now is very expensive. Even if you have a dev team and you want to experiment with foundational models, it's on meter pricing and that racks up real quick like in a hurry. So, you know, I think that's one area where massive firms have a little bit of an advantage in terms of the, the next 18 to 36 months because they have the bankroll to play. Those costs, of course, technology is going to drive that down. Chips are getting better, compute getting better. All of that is going to change. But right now, the table stakes to play with, you know, your own models, your own data is quite expensive. So that's uh, one barrier where the pricing changes are not going to come instantaneously. The third is that the buy sides of corporate law departments have to do a little bit of thinking about where they want to point this bazooka, pricing power. So I think when clients come to the table and they want to move the market discount, so like 10, 15 years ago, a volume discount that's market for a stable relationship over, let's say, one to three million range, right, was 10%. Clients successfully move that to 15%. They're going to try for 20 in this you know, era. And I think that's the wrong approach because that's the same thing as the CEO showing up and demanding 20% expense cuts across the board. That's going to hurt the business, the performance of the business. I think the pricing approaches that are going to be more fruitful are actually when the buyer brings a tranche of work that is really suited for redesign. Right. Redesign on the means of production, redesign on how the work is actually, you know, triaged and, and routed, how the work is serviced from be, like intake to to close. I think that is going to take a little bit of, of trust and collaboration between, you know, buyer and seller. That takes time. I do think we are going to see an uptick in different pricing models. And I mean fundamentally different because a lot of AFAs right now are basically like, you know, dressed up discounts, hourly discounts, because they're still using hours uh, times rate. I think we are actually going to see more success-based fees because uh, across all value sp spectrum, if you kind of take the pyramid of the corporate legal wallet, you take cream, you know, which is not, not actually that high in volume, but it probably takes about 15% of the wallet. 
And then core work, right? Uh, I think we're going to see different pricing approaches in both. And I think they're going to be success oriented because the firms that do start working differently do start thinking differently, not about just technology deployment, but really people enablement and training. They are going to get better outcomes. So I I think what we're going to see in that two to four year and then the next, you know, five to eight year stretch is legal and innovation has to graduate like schools out. There's no more A for effort. I think in-house departments are going to start holding law firms accountable for um, new progress and demonstrable, measurable impacts of innovation spend. So I think we are going to we are entering, I think, a change era in how legal services are bought and sold. But in the next two years, it's going to be really tough. I don't I don't see it as a short term play. I do see an inflection point coming soon, though. I know we're running out of time, but there's one question that we got that I want to I want to read to the team and, and get your reaction to it. One of our legal services vendors is using its massive database of international case opinions and administrative decisions and office actions in a particular legal area to educate a generative AI tool in order to provide a much more sophisticated document output and legal analysis in that particular area. Is this area by area approach likely to bear fruit? And is it consistent with what you see others are doing? I think yes. And I think yes, because, sorry, I'm thinking of yes from an early stage company perspective. And I think about this like cash is oxygen for early stage companies. And to continuously get cash, you need to show improvement. You need to show that you're progressing as a company. When customers sign up, you're showing progression. When customers can and end users of the software feel like they're at home with something that's a little bit more verticalized and they see it and they're like, this is exactly what this is created for me and my job, the sales cycle shrinks dramatically. So we're looking for, you know, and you can argue if these are point solutions, if they're vertical, if they're horizontal, whatever they look like. But I will tell you that the vertical ones are the ones that are able to, um, you know, they stay alive and they get purchased, you know, they, they kind of build a customer base quickly. Now, as to how big those companies get, that's kind of a different question. But if you're looking for a great experience, like somebody that's focusing on a more verticalized solution is going to provide a better experience for you. Great. Thanks, Zach. We are at time. I want to thank all the panelists for a great conversation. I found it fascinating. And for all of you who are joining it, thanks for spending an hour's worth of your time to listen. Hopefully you got value out of it. Thank you for joining. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.